Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 345, Is Jesus Still a Man? Part 1. This episode of the Trinity's podcast, as well as the next episode, is my long response to a rather long listener question. I like to give a short and clear answer when possible, but sometimes a short answer is not possible. Only a long one will do. Still, I'll try to make it clear. In brief, a listener emailed me and argued that according to Scripture, Jesus is no longer a man, but rather at his resurrection and exaltation, he was transformed into some sort of divine being. In these episodes, I will discuss the Scriptures he cites in support of this unusual position, but I think I need to start with a lengthy prologue on theological method and specifically on the usefulness of studying philosophy. In my view, Philosophy is not just a dirty old pagan tradition that corrupts everything it touches any more than is any other field of human knowledge, such as history or biology or psychology. Like these other fields, philosophy, you could say, is just a technology or a community-created way to think about reality. It's a knowledge-seeking tradition, which is constantly changing and developing. Progress is very slow and hard to see in this field, but in my view, it does occur. And I think when some of my Unitarian friends are thinking philosophy, the only interest that has for them is the kind of ancient, mostly platonic popular philosophy that so unreasonably influenced ancient theology. But, you know, philosophy is a lot different now than it was in the year 150 AD, just as are biology, physics, and psychology. For instance, there just really aren't any Platonists around anymore. That is a long-extinct species of philosopher. And there really is no avoiding philosophy. We all ask philosophical questions, questions which are too basic or general to be answered by any other human discipline, like biology, psychology, or even theology. We all have opinions on properly philosophical topics. No one is more helpless in the face of philosophical influence than the person who imagines that he simply doesn't do philosophy. I just read the scriptures, he thinks. No person is more blind to philosophical influence and philosophically derived assumptions than a person like that. They are just not aware about how these assumptions which they in fact have are guiding their thoughts. Is there bad philosophy in the world? Absolutely. And it can be very destructive. But so too, is there bad biology, bad history, bad psychology, and bad theology? And these too are very destructive. And the solution to these is good biology, good history, good psychology, and good theology. So the solution to bad philosophy is not no philosophy, but rather good philosophy. What makes a philosophy good? Well, that it's true or approximately true, and also that it's reasonably believed, 
And I would add that it needs to fit together with things that everyone knows, or we could say common sense. So those of you who think you can come up with a philosophy-free theology are living in a fantasy world, what you're trying to do is impossible, but you don't see that it's impossible because you're not aware of your own philosophical assumptions and how those affect how you read scripture and draw inferences from it. Of course, it is right to be worried about unjustified and unbiblical philosophical assumptions which warp how we understand the texts. Famous and much-discussed examples include the idea that God is timeless or, quote, outside of time, or that God is simple. Just Google divine simplicity and read a few articles about that if you're not familiar with it. But who is it who is really qualified and able to point out these alien ideas, to carefully analyze their meanings, and to question their justification? It's philosophers. Not so much historians, not so much theologians. They're not trained that way. They're not good at arguing in these realms. No, not biblical scholars either, who are very often very captive to the philosophical assumptions of their own time and place. The person who's going to help you find these alien philosophical inserts into theology and to help you see why they're problematic, it's going to be a Christian philosopher. So, for instance, if you're a Unitarian Christian who's laboring under the mistaken assumption that God must be timeless and so incapable of any sort of change whatever, you need help from a Christian philosopher who can point out how this claim is not consistent with many other claims that Christians are committed to, and who can point out that nothing in Scripture supports such claims, and that many scriptural teachings imply their falsity. See the excellent work, for example, being done by Christian philosopher Ryan Mullins either his published work or his Reluctant Theologian podcast. You heard a sample from that podcast, hopefully back in Trinity's Podcast 342, called New Year, New Podcasts, and I'll also put a link to it on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Dr. Mullins has done very helpful work on rooting out the unbiblical and unhelpful but long-entrenched ideas of divine timelessness, divine total changelessness, and divine simplicity as well as some related ideas. And of course, philosophy is not all about bad ideas. And generally speaking, for any long-standing philosophical tradition, there are some reasons why it was so appealing to so many people. There's usually something true that they're getting at. If it was totally stupid, it just wouldn't be a long-lasting philosophical tradition or have been influential on so many people in so many different times and places. So rather than dunking on philosophically derived doctrines that I think are wrong, like divine timelessness and unchangeability, I'm going to spend a lot of time now talking about some widespread and, I think, plausible philosophical ideas which will affect how you approach the question about whether or not Jesus is currently a man, or whether he's instead been transformed into some sort of non-human divine being. These views are widely shared And they come into play when Trinitarian theologians try to show that their concept of a God-man is not incoherent. In other words, when they try to show that their doctrine of a two-natured Christ does not imply any contradiction, and so it can't be proven false in that way. So the key terms that I want to focus on now are the terms humanity and divinity. Each of these terms can be interpreted in at least two different ways. 
There are actually more interpretations than these, but these are the most important, I think, for our purposes. And how you're using the term is going to affect how you're going to approach the question, is Jesus still a man or not? The two ways I'm going to be describing are, first of all, understanding them as essence terms, which refer to an essence or a nature, to the whatness of a thing or to what makes it a member of a certain natural kind. And the second meaning that can be given to divinity and humanity will be what I'll call just a status. It's just a condition that things can move in or out of while still existing, not unlike being hot or cold, being happy or being mad, or being here or being there. So first, now I'm going to explain the use of the terms humanity and divinity to mean essences or natures. In a metaphysical sense, you could say. The essence is the whatness of a thing. It's what it is to be that sort of thing. It's what is, you can say, foundational or central or fundamental to things in that natural kind. The idea is that if you are understanding things by their essences, you're carving nature at the joints. So if you consider an apple, arguably that's a natural thing. If you consider a cat, that's a natural thing. And then a human being, that's a natural thing. Each one of these things, it's plausible to think, should have an essence. That is to say, a what it is to be that sort of thing. But if we consider a guy holding a cat and an apple, and we call that conjunction of three things together, guy holding cat and holding an apple, if we call that altogether Fred, I mean, we could use the word in that way, right? We could even say true things. We could say Fred is in this room or Fred has just left the building. It's not clear that there is any such thing as Fred. Fred's not the guy's name. Fred refers to the guy, the cat, and the apple. It's not clear that there is such a thing as Fred. We could use that name in that way if we wanted to. And Fred, we don't think, would have an essence. It shouldn't have a whatness. It doesn't belong to any natural kind. Its parts or components do, but it doesn't. So understood as an essence, humanity is supposed to be that quality or set of qualities that makes whatever has it, the thing that has the qualities, a human being. So you're a human, I'm a human. So then you have humanity, whatever these properties are that are required for being a human being, and I have humanity too. Equivalently, we can say that you have the essence humanity or the nature humanity. Now, an essence just by definition is the kind of thing that can only be gained by coming into existence, and an essence can only be lost by the thing that has it going out of existence, because it is features that the thing has to have so long as it exists, being a thing of that kind. So humanity, in the sense of an essence, it's in principle not the sort of thing that could be gained or lost while still existing. Again, the same points would hold about divinity. If it's an essence, it's the kind of thing which couldn't be gained or lost, except by being gained through coming into existence, or lost by going out of existence. These are all just conceptual points that we're making here. And divinity would be whatever it is that makes the owner a god. It's whatever properties are necessary and sufficient for being a god. Now, if we clarify that we're talking about the kind of divinity that the one true God has, not just any old alleged so-called God, then some interesting things will follow. 
arguably, if you're God in the biblical sense, then neither your existence nor your perfections will depend on anything else. And furthermore, divinity in that sense will entail being eternal, so never having come into existence and then never going out of existence. If divinity includes all that, then it just couldn't be gained, period. Not even by coming into existence, because again, it implies eternality. Nor could this sort of divinity in principle be lost, because it implies eternality, and because it implies necessary existence, the absolute impossibility of not existing. So, the kind of divinity the one true God has would be different in these ways from other essences. Again, that in principle, it couldn't come to be had and it couldn't be lost. And that's because a God, in this sense, can neither come into existence nor go out of existence. Nor could you cause a thing to have divinity, because it includes what philosophers and theologians call aseity, or existing and having one's perfections independent of anything else. Or if somebody caused you to exist or caused you to be divine, well, in principle, they couldn't cause you to be divine, because being divine implies also aseity. So the terms humanity and divinity can be understood to refer to essences, which are the features which make the owner a thing of a certain kind, namely a human being or a god. Just generally, the whole essence or the features that make it up are such that the thing in question can't exist without having them. And so the only way, just conceptually, you could gain an essence is to come into existence as a thing of that sort or to go out of existence, in other words, to be annihilated. Those don't really seem to apply in the case of divinity, if we're talking about the kind of divinity the one true God has. More on that in a bit. And so, when it comes to these speculations about a God-man in Christianity, about Jesus having both divine and human nature, this is usually what's meant by humanity and divinity. He has the essence or nature humanity, and he also has the essence or nature divinity. Well, almost. It's a little bit more complicated than that, unfortunately. So what they usually think, and there are always exceptions because Christological speculations are a complete mess, but they want to say that Jesus is divine because he has the divine essence or nature. And they also want to say he's human, but not exactly because he has the essence humanity but rather because he, the one person here who just is the divine nature or essence, understood as a particular thing, he comes to be mysteriously related to a thing which has the human essence or nature, which confusingly is called his human nature. So talk about divine or human essence or nature can be about, again, the properties which are necessary and sufficient to make their owner divine or human, a member of the natural kind in question, or, when they talk about divine or human essence or nature, that might be a way to refer to these individual things, which are often thought of as components or parts of the incarnate Christ, the individual things which have the aforementioned essences or natures understood as properties. Okay, so they say the incarnate Christ is divine and human, and so he has all of the properties entailed by both divinity and humanity in some sense. 
when it comes to divinity, what it is that, strictly speaking, has all the properties of divinity, like omniscience and omnipotence, for instance, or eternity, what strictly has those qualities that constitute divine essence is the individual thing that they call his divine nature, which is really just him. There's not really a distinction between Jesus and the concrete individual divine nature And it's strictly that thing which has the abstract or universal properties that we call divine essence or nature. And they want to say that he counts as human, but in a unique sense. And that sense is that he's mysteriously unified with this individual thing called a complete human nature, which consists of a body and a rational soul. And that thing, that individual human nature, is what strictly has these properties that are required, uh, that are necessary and sufficient for being a human being. But it's not a human being because of its union with the divine nature. Mm, But it would be a human being, maybe if not for that union. Well, they can say different things about whether that's an actual possibility. But, But even though... Supposedly, it has whatever is necessary and sufficient for being human. It's not a human person. The human nature is made personal by the mysterious union with the divine nature. But there is no human person here. Well, then it's not clear whether or not this human nature really has everything necessary and sufficient for being human. Because part of being human is being a human person. Okay, the point is this. When Trinitarians talk about divine or human nature, they can be talking about a thing that has properties, which would be one of these components, supposedly, of the incarnate Christ. Or they could be talking about these properties or collections of properties that are necessary and sufficient for being a thing of a certain kind. So when believers in incarnation talk about Christ's humanity and his divinity, they could be Again, referring to the particular concrete individual human nature and the particular concrete individual divine nature, or they could be referring to the idea that Christ, who is one person, in some sense has all that's required by divinity and also all that's required by humanity. And in that sense, when they talk about him being divine and human, they're using divinity and humanity or divine and human as words to refer to divine essence and human essence understood as essential properties. Confusing? Yes. But whoever said this stuff was easy. (laughs) So, for example, in recent Trinity's podcasts, 343 and 344, Dr. William Lake Craig talks about the divine and human natures in both senses. Sometimes he means those parts or components of the incarnate Christ, and sometimes he means these universal properties that anything human or anything divine would have to have. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some other things that one might mean by talking about divinity and humanity
In this segment, I'm going to give you a little bit of made-up mythology, because I think it's helpful to make a couple of points. It's not unlike certain actual myths in religions other than Christianity, and if you pay attention, you'll see how the coherence of the story requires not thinking of humanity and divinity as essences. Rather, the story requires thinking of divinity and humanity just as statuses or conditions that a being may move in or out of while still existing. So that's the point of this myth. I'm not telling you something I believe. I'm not telling you something which I think is even possibly true. But what I'm telling you is the kind of story which makes sense if you don't think of divinity and humanity as essences in the way I described in the previous segment. So once upon a time, there was a certain god, and this god didn't really get along with all the other gods and goddesses, so he decided that he would make himself a little baby god to keep him company. He created another little god he called Junior. Junior was a very naughty god. He was always getting into trouble, stealing things, sassing back, just generally disobeying his father. And so one day, his father just zapped him with a lightning bolt and killed him. Then the father, God, thought about it a little bit and decided maybe he lost his temper there. That wasn't really a very just punishment. So he brought his little God back to life. And he said, Son, you're a very naughty little deity. But instead of killing you, I'm going to do something almost as bad. I'm going to strip you of your divinity and turn you into a mere man and make you live on the face of the earth. And the little deity said, No, Dad, don't do it. But it was too late. He stuck out his finger, the older god, and a lightning bolt came out. And the next thing he knew, that little god found himself, well, no longer a little god at all. He was just a man on the earth wearing sandals. And he had to live out the rest of his life in Sri Lanka in the 7th century. As human lives go, it wasn't a terrible one, but he did miss being a god. He found the weather kind of hot, but he enjoyed the elephants. The end. A couple of observations about that story. If divinity and humanity were supposed to be essences in that story, then the story would be total nonsense, right? Because you have something losing its defining essence of divinity, which is by hypothesis impossible, no matter what divinity involves. And then while still existing, he comes to have a different essence, which is humanity. That's not supposed to be possible. An essence is something you're supposed to have so long as you exist, so you couldn't have ever existed without it. So if the statuses of humanity and divinity meant essences there, the story just breaks down into impossibilities that are really obvious. It kind of turns it into nonsense. Also, clearly the kind of divinity that's in view can't be the kind that the one true God has, according to Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. Divinity in that sense is not compatible with being naughty. It's not compatible with having been created. It's not compatible with being killed. It's not compatible with multiple things having it, as it implies uniqueness. And as it implies eternality, just in principle, you couldn't lose it, so you couldn't lose it so as to become a human being. Okay. But if by humanity you just mean something like a rational being or a self in a condition somewhat like that which you and I enjoy, 
Right? So we're very limited in power and knowledge, and we're temptable, and we're subject to death and decay. If that's all you mean by humanity, it's just a status, not an essence. It's a kind of property, a status that a thing could gain or lose in principle. Maybe all you mean by divinity is, again, it's not an essence, it's just a status. Maybe it's just a status of being a lot more powerful than any human being could be, or being really powerful and having supernatural power, power that goes beyond what would be allowed by just the natural world, something like that. If that's all divinity and humanity amount to, maybe you couldn't be both human and divine at the same time because you can't be super-duper powerful and not super-duper powerful at the same time. But maybe you could be a divinity who got busted down and demoted to humanity. And in principle, you could be a human who somehow achieves divinity. You just become super-duper holy, make all the right sacrifices or something, and the other deities say, all right, we'll bring you up to our level. And they endow you with that level of power that will make you a divinity. Maybe they make you immortal. The religions of the world are full of mythology in which divinity and humanity are thought of in these ways. Neither one is an essence. Each one is just a status that a thing might gain and lose. Sometimes they think something has both, and then it's not clear how that could be so, such as in the case of the avatar myths of Vaishnavite Hinduism. So again, let's focus more on the term divinity. If it's an essence, it's whatever it is that makes the owner a god. It's going to imply all the powers and all the properties that the one true god has, or at least a god has. But if it's not an essence, it's just a status that a thing might gain or lose without coming into existence or ceasing to exist, then presumably divinity is just like some sort of similarity to God or to the gods, if you believe in a pantheon. And There are some Christian traditions that use the word divinity in this sense. So traditional talk in Eastern Christianity about human salvation as theosis or deification, when they talk that way, they're talking about divinity as something that we can come to have. And it doesn't imply being a god in the strict sense of the term. It just implies being like God. So maybe immortal powerful and uh, immune to sin, something like that. In this way of thinking and talking, divinity is a status that God can give us, say, when we're raised to eternal life. In fact, if you've been a podcast listener for a long time, you've heard this a long time ago on the Trinity's podcast, which is number 59, Dr. Carl Mosier on salvation as deification. Now talk about humans becoming divine. If we're talking about the divinity of the one true God, if we're talking about that sort of divinity, it's just nonsense. It couldn't possibly be true. But notice also that if we're talking about some lesser sort of divinity, even so, if it's still an essence, maybe an essence had by angels, for instance, then it's an obvious impossibility to suppose that a human being who has a different kind essence could attain that or be given that. Talk about moving from divinity to humanity or humanity to divinity. Obviously, if you're trying to say something true, will require that by divinity you just mean a certain philosophers would say contingent or accidental status, and that by humanity you just mean some kind of non-essential status. I mean, basically it's going to be just becoming more powerful. That's all deification is really going to amount to. And then 
going the other direction is basically just going to be becoming less powerful. Understood in that way, when divinity and humanity are not essences, then these sort of myths are coherent, that is, they don't obviously imply contradictions. Now, a person might say, I understand these two uses of terms like divinity and humanity, but why on earth should I believe in essences? All I mean when I talk about divinity and humanity is just, you know, having a status roughly like what we have now versus having a much greater status. That's what I mean when I say that something is divine. Well, I'll tell you, I think you should believe in essences. And a lot of Christian tradition has sort of absorbed these, I think, reasonable assumptions. And so they're not usually explicitly talked about, but the ideas really go back to the philosophers Plato and Aristotle in ancient times. Although just the idea of essence itself doesn't really particularly uh, have to do with Platonism or Aristotelianism. In other words, you could hold to many, many different philosophical systems and still believe that there are essences in this sense, or natures. Again, properties or sets of properties that are necessary and sufficient for being a thing of a certain natural kind. This is a common idea to many, many philosophies. So why believe in them? Well, here's why. First of all, change is real. There have been philosophies which have denied that change is real. They have said, oh yeah, there's apparent change, but it's all illusory. Well, give me a break. If you walk from one side of the room to the other side of the room, that's a real change. It's called change of place or locomotion. If you change from being awake to being asleep, that's a change. If you change from not being mad to being mad, you mad, bro? That's a change. Now, what is change? There's, I think, a strict concept of change and a loose concept of change. Here's a way to understand a loose concept of change. Suppose you're looking at an apple on a table, and you're just staring at this apple for a minute. You think to yourself, that was one interesting minute I just spent staring at that apple. That apple, I have just watched it exist for the period of one minute. But actually, unbeknownst to you, God has been playing a trick on you. What he's done is he has created and destroyed a billion indistinguishable apples over the course of that one minute. He's just creating an apple from nothing and destroying it and creating another one that can't be distinguished from it in its place. And he's doing this so fast, it's beyond, you could say, the resolution of human perception. Just like when you watch a movie, you can't perceive the individual frames. So in this scenario, you can't see that innumerable apples are being created and annihilated right there on your table. To you, it just looks like one apple sitting there for one minute. Now, what you would normally think, observing an apple for one minute, you would say, I have just experienced that apple getting one minute older. Maybe I took it out of the fridge. It was 50 degrees when I took it out. And now it's maybe 50 and a half degrees. It's slowly warming up because the room is warmer than the fridge. Okay, but if God were to play that kind of trick on you, then that's not change in the strict sense. In this scenario, you have not seen one apple get a minute older. You haven't experienced one apple slowly warming up. Rather, God has been rapidly replacing a series of apples, none of which has existed even as long as one second. 
and presumably in this sequence of apples, the temperature is slowly increased. With this sort of rapid replacement, he fooled you into thinking that you're observing change in the strict sense, which would be one and the same apple sitting there for one minute, going from cooler to warmer. Change in the strict sense is one and the same thing is a certain way at one moment, then at some later moment they're a different way. Change presupposes the numerical sameness of the thing which changes. There's a before a change, there's during the change, and there's an after the change. The during the change could conceivably be momentary, or it might be a short period of time, or even a long period of time. But at any rate, one and the same thing earlier was this way, and now it's a different way. That is change in the strict sense. If God were to play that trick on you, you would not have observed a change. Now, at every moment, there'd be something different there, but it wouldn't be a change, right? Because there's no one apple surviving the whole process. If when you put the first apple there, it's 50 degrees, and then a minute later, there's an apple that's 50 and a half degrees, well, nothing has changed temperature, right? Because at the end of that one minute, that's just an apple that God created one nanosecond before. Okay. So, how do we know God isn't doing this to us all the time? Good question, but I'm not going to answer it. I'm instead going to point out that I think it's a matter of experience that you and I undergo strict change constantly. You go from being hot to being cold, from being happy to being annoyed, from being asleep to being awake. It's just a matter of experience that I, one and the same thing, am earlier this way and then later that other way. And it's not a rapid succession of different selves. We experience that it's one and the same self throughout. And that's also something that we know by short-term memory. So we experience the start and end points, and sometimes we experience the transitioning as well. That's just common sense. Those are facts which I think any philosophy which is true must take into account. Not all philosophies do, but anyway... Getting back to essences, it seems that there must be limits to what sorts of change a thing can undergo. So I can clearly change from not thinking about pizza to actually thinking about pizza. Hey, you just underwent that change yourself, didn't you? I can change from being less than 220 pounds to being more than 220 pounds. I particularly do that around Christmas time. But... Could I change from being a man to being a ham sandwich? Surely not. Now, you might think you can imagine such a thing. Just imagine that you see me standing there, minding my own business, and then the voice of God is heard. He says, Watch what the Almighty can do, O you who doubt my power. Then there's a big flash and a mighty roar. And then, where I was standing a second ago, There is hanging in midair a delicious-looking ham sandwich, which then proceeds to fall to the floor. Has God turned Dale Tuggy into a ham sandwich? Clearly not, for that sandwich on the floor is not and cannot be me. Remember, change in the strict sense assumes the numerical sameness of the thing which changed through the whole process. Whatever it is to be a human being, surely that sandwich lacks it. Does being human require a certain sort of soul, as many philosophers and many Christians think? Well, presumably the sandwich lacks it. 
does being human require having a certain sort of brain or body? Well, the ham sandwich entirely lacks those things. Does being human require being a whole living organism with a certain type of life? The sandwich entirely lacks that. Now, you might object that, hey, I think God could do absolutely anything. Well, I would have to disagree with that. I agree with the mainstream of Christian theology that God cannot do things which entail a contradiction or things which are just fundamentally metaphysically impossible. So God can't make two plus two be three. God can't draw something that's a square circle. And I think it's just as impossible that a human should turn into a ham sandwich. So I don't think that God could do that. Now, quite how we understand divine omnipotence is another interesting question that we could spend a whole podcast episode on. And guess who are the only ones discussing that? Yep, philosophers. Mostly Christian philosophers. Now back to the amusing scenario you just heard. What you imagined is actually kind of ambiguous. You wouldn't be able to see that God had turned me into a ham sandwich. What you would see is just what we described before. And there could, of course, uh, be a couple of different things that are occurring there, which do seem to us like they're metaphysically possible. And they do seem like things which a being with divine power ought to be able to do. So what you're imagining there is not God turning me into a ham sandwich, but rather God destroying me, or maybe moving me to somewhere you can't see, and then creating a ham sandwich where I was standing. But that is not, strictly speaking, changing me into a sandwich, because I don't exist both before and after the time in question. It would be, strictly speaking, false to point to the sandwich and say, that used to be a man, namely Dale Tuggy. And it would be false if anyone were to point to me moments before and say, Tuggy, you are about to become a ham sandwich. Now, it need not be that God creates the ham sandwich, as theologians say, ex nihilo, from nothing. That is, he doesn't have to create it not using anything as material for it. God, being all-knowing and all-powerful, could, if he wanted to, take some of the matter that is currently composing my body at that time and destroy me, or again, or move me somewhere else, and then use those atoms to fashion a ham sandwich, or at least something indistinguishable from a ham sandwich. We might wonder if anything instantaneously created could truly be ham, that is the former flesh of a pig. But anyway, if it couldn't, he could make the sort of pseudo-ham which could be made by a replicating machine. Of course, to an observer like you, either scenario would look the same. Whether God makes the sandwich from nothing, or whether he uses a portion of the matter which had just composed my body in order to make it. But at any rate, the resulting sandwich would seem not to be me, and so this sort of event cannot be me turning into a sandwich. It's in some sense me being replaced by a sandwich right? That's not change in the strict sense. In fact, changing me into a ham sandwich seems to be something that even an all-powerful being could not do. Just as with many other changes that we might imagine, but when we think about them more, we think that they are impossible. So, it looks like even God couldn't turn a chicken into a planet. Even God couldn't turn an electron into a pot of chicken soup. And he couldn't turn a fly's turd into an elephant. Interestingly, there are things that we can conceive of and even vividly imagine happening, which upon reflection we can know to be absolutely impossible. 
So the essence of a natural thing is the unchanging what it is to be, that sort of thing. And that will have to remain the same through any kind of change, at least short of annihilation. The essence, together with the thing which has it, will exist through time and will exist before any change the thing goes through and after any change that it goes through. To switch away from humanity and divinity, if there is such a thing as being a banana, call that bananahood, a banana changes. It goes from being all yellow on the outside to being yellow with a few spots. But we think it's one and the same banana. And so we think that what it is to be a banana or bananahood is compatible with that sort of change. Now, when it's all the way decayed and is just a pile of goo, we tend to think that's not a banana. So again, a banana cannot survive just any sort of change. Some changes are going to destroy it. It's going to be destroyed as soon as it loses any property which a banana must have so long as it exists. And that'll be part of its essence. Now, if you ask me what the essence of a banana is, I don't know. I could not specify for you all the properties that would have to include. And in the case of most things, there are going to be a lot of disagreements about what is truly essential to that thing. As I've already indicated in the case of human beings and human nature, human essence. But it still seems that there must be essences because things can't just survive any change whatsoever. Some changes will destroy the thing. They do that by removing part or all of what is essential to being that kind of thing. In other words, essences set necessary boundaries about what sorts of changes that sort of thing can undergo. Your cat can go from being calm to being annoyed. Your cat can go from being bored to being amused. He can go from being hungry to not being hungry. But if, you nasty person, you put your cat in a blender and turn it on... Presumably the contents of the blender, that is no longer a cat. You have destroyed the cat in that process. A cat cannot change into cat soup in that sense, or a cat shake. But there are a lot of changes a cat can undergo, and those are whatever changes are consistent with its having cathood, the essence of being a cat. When the Turandis podcast returns, some more ambiguous words and a little bit more about different concepts of deity or divinity. Now, I know I've laid a lot of ambiguous terminology on you, especially the terms divinity and humanity, but, you know, there are lots of ambiguous terms here. For instance, when Trinitarians say the word God, what does that refer to? It's ambiguous four ways. It can refer to the Father, or to the Son, or to the Holy Spirit, or to the Trinity. Again, if you look at the Old Testament word Elohim, which can be translated as God or God's, It's very often singular in meaning, although like the English word pants, it's plural in its form or structure. 
The word Elohim in those times could refer to God, the one true God, or to one or more of the alleged deities of the Gentiles, or to angels, or even, in a few places, to disembodied souls like ghosts. Nowadays, even when trained scholars talk about monotheism and polytheism and atheism, there's a lot of ambiguity in what sort of being they mean by that word theos, which is the root of theism. They might be talking merely about a being with much greater than normal human power, which is powerful beyond what nature could do. If that's what a god or a divine being is, then in a Christian context, angels will count as gods. And maybe even, as I mentioned before, resurrected human beings will be counted as gods or as divine in that sense. But if by divine or by deity you mean a being which is necessarily unique and the perfect ultimate source of all else, having what it takes to be the one true God, Yahweh, well, in a Christian context, it's assumed that only Yahweh is divine in that way, setting aside Trinitarian complications for the moment. And in a paper which I have published, which I think is actually the best piece of scholarship that I've done, it's called On Counting Gods. I also presented this material in Trinity's podcast 164. In that paper, I've suggested distinguishing between a deity and a god. And a deity is one which has that status of being greater in power than any normal human, basically. Whereas a god has to be a necessarily unique source of all else, and maybe also a perfect being. So in my view, the so-called polytheists are not saying that there are many of the sort of thing that monotheists are talking about. And monotheists are not exactly saying that there is only one of the sort of thing that polytheists are talking about. In fact, in my paper, I suggest getting rid of the word polytheism altogether in favor of the term polydeism. You'll have to see the paper for the details there. So in that sense, Christians agree that in the second sense, there can be only one who has divine nature. There's only one who's divine in that sense. And in the first sense, maybe angels are going to count as divine, and as I mentioned, maybe even post-resurrection humans as well. So I've tried to help sort out some of the confusion that results from our always using terms ambiguously, terms like God, deity, and divine. I'm making all these distinctions not because I want to quarrel about words, but precisely because I don't want to quarrel about words. I want to make sure, with all these different uses of these terms going on, that we understand what one another are meaning. And I think you'll see the payoff for the main distinction I've made in this episode in part two next time. Again, that's the distinction between humanity and divinity understood as referring to essences versus humanity and divinity understood as referring to mere conditions or statuses. Probably that's going to be basically two different levels of power. But to sum up, I understand talk about divinity and humanity as mere statuses that are not essences, and that's why you can have a lot of ancient Taoist myths where people somehow discover some magical potion that makes them into deities, just makes them immortal, basically. And I can understand mythology in which deities are demoted to mere humanity. None of that is contradictory if by human you just mean a being with the kind of limits that we have, and by divine you mean someone with much greater powers. 
I understand that way of talking, but I also understand talking about humanity and divinity as essences or natures, as referring to properties which a thing has to have so long as it's a member of that natural kind. So anyone who is truly a human being will have to have, so long as they exist, humanity. Anyone who's a god will have to have divinity. Any dog has to have caninity. Any cat has to have felinity, and so on. Not anything that you can name has an essence or nature, but the idea is that things which belong to natural kinds do. So there is a natural way to sort things together in terms of these natures. Like if you lumped together the dogs and cats and called them by one name, you would be disregarding the differences in their natures, and it looks like that would be a mistake, an objective mistake. It's not purely subjective how we categorize things. Nature does supply us with some natural divisions. That's the idea of natural kinds. Well, if there are natural kinds, then there are essences in the sense I've described. So do you believe that there are essences in that sense? Yes, I think you should. There are long Christian traditions about reasoning from both scripture and philosophy about what sorts of properties a perfect being would have to have, and this is very useful to the project of Christian theology. That tradition, called perfect being theology, is all about exploring what must be included in divine nature or essence. In other words, what is involved in being a god. And of course, there couldn't be more than one, because this essence we're talking about implies uniqueness. It's also interesting to theorize about human beings and what sorts of limitations are built into us, and how exalted a status we might attain to by the grace of God. There are lots of interesting disputes about what human nature involves, but what these disputes presuppose is that there is such a thing as human nature. Which is to say there are some properties that are in all members of this natural kind called human beings. And these are features that we have to have so long as we exist. If somebody were to rip one of these features away from us, we would cease to exist. And the only way you can get human nature is by coming into existence as a human being. So yeah, I think these widely shared parts of Western philosophical tradition make sense. And Christians can use them in arguments about whether incarnation makes any sense. And I do use them, for instance, in my debate book with Chris Date called Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? I referred to some properties that I think are part of or implied by divinity, understood as an essence. And then there are some properties that I think are implied by humanity, again, understood as an essence. And these properties are such that nothing could have both. This is a way of establishing that nothing could be both human and divine, in the sense of having both essences. Well, that was a lot of build-up, and unfortunately, I didn't even get to the listener question. In the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, you're going to hear that letter from a listener in which he argues that it's a mistake to think that nowadays Jesus is human. Rather, he thinks Jesus has been changed from being human to being divine. I'm going to interact with his arguments and with his proof text, which he thinks obviously imply his conclusion. And when I do, like all of us, I will be approaching the text in light of some basic metaphysical presuppositions, the ones which I've been explaining here at some length, that there is such a thing as the essence humanity 
and there is such a thing as the essence divinity. Now about this view that Jesus is nowadays divine and no longer human, interestingly, in the history of Christianity, this is a very, very unpopular conclusion. Being a Unitarian Christian, I don't assume that unpopularity implies falsehood, or even that it's an unreasonable view. But the question is just, has this sort of view about Jesus been unpopular for good reasons or not? And I'm inclined to think that there are good reasons why very few Christians have taken that route. So we'll talk more about that, and we'll also give his arguments and his texts their proper due. Thanks for listening. This week's thinking music has been the track Blue Notation by Ezra Skull. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.